0: It's God's light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. You are a child of God. Your plain small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine. As children, we were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in all of us. Here this morning, how's everybody doing today? Great, that was a little reticent from some. Some of you want to clap, that's okay. How are you doing today? There you go. That's all right. I'm glad that you're here with us. Take out your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Acts chapter 7. My name is Chad, and I'm one of the men on staff here. Pastor Chris, our senior pastor, is at the Calvary campus this morning with Rob Lewis, and so I'm excited that they get to do that. There was a work day at Calvary yesterday, and so pastors there just loving on the people who are in that campus today, and I'm grateful for that. Acts chapter 7 is where we're going to be. We're going to continue the story of Stephen. We're in a series right now called Ecclesia. Ecclesia is the Greek word that means... Means the called out ones. It's where we get our English word, the church. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are one of the called out ones. You are part of the ecclesia. And what that really means is one of the called out ones. It's, it just means that God has chosen you for something significant in your community in this generation. That's really what it means to be a called out one, is that God's chosen you for something significant in your community in this generation. Now, I know some of you who are here today or who are possibly watching online. I know it's entirely possible that you're not you don't think of yourself as one of the called out ones because you're still questioning faith. You don't really know or believe the history about who Jesus was and and what it was that he did and and I just want you to know that I understand those questions. I appreciate those questions. This is a great place to come and ask those kinds of questions because we love the privilege of being able to visit with people and to just talk to people, just build great friendships around great questions because we all have those questions at times, don't we? Can God be trusted? Is God really a good God? One of the questions that we're going to address today is, what is God? what about suffering and pain in the world? How does God use that? How can a loving God uh, allow something like that? And so if you question faith, if you're not really a believer, yet, or if you're still exploring this truth of who Christ is, then thank you for being here today, and thank you for trusting us with the privilege of talking with you about the questions you may have. I hope you'll keep coming back. I hope you'll keep... Asking those questions. But the series that we're in is called Ecclesia, and it it does. It means the called out ones, and it is that idea that that God has called you for something significant in your generation. And so, uh, over the past uh, week, really, uh, Pastor Chris began the series last week with the story of Stephen, and today, we're going to have an opportunity to continue that story. We're going to have an opportunity to finish the story of Stephen and we're going to see some things in the life of Stephen that I think are significant and relevant to each one of us, things that that I think we need to catch. And there's a question that I really want to shape your mind around today. So as as you listen to God's Word today and as we just discuss God's Word, let this question shape the way you think about the things that we're going to talk about today. And the question is this, are you willing to be intellectually honest about the limits of your faith? Are you willing to be intellectually honest about the limits of your faith? Uh, Another way to say that would be, how far are you willing to go for your faith? Where's the deal breaker? Jesus, I'll believe you if you do this for me, and God, I'll believe you if you'll do that for me. But if you ask me to do this, that's the deal breaker. That's where I step back. I'll follow you this far but I won't follow you anymore. Romans chapter 1, Paul says, as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel. I've always thought that was an interesting way to say that, as much as is in me. Paul demonstrated that he was willing to die for his faith, but it always challenges me, as much as is in me. How much is in me? How far am I willing to go? Are you willing today to be intellectually honest about the limits of your faith? Because the story of Stephen takes a tragic turn In what we've seen. So, if you would, Acts chapter 7 is where we're gonna be. And just to remind you, Stephen is preaching the gospel to a group of people in Jerusalem. And where we'll start is the reaction of that crowd, the reaction of those people to the gospel message that Stephen was preaching. So it's a little bit different than some of the stories we see in the Bible. Oftentimes we see stories where people are victorious and thousands of people get saved and amazing things happen and miraculous works are done. And and people actually literally are not just, not through spiritual salvation, but through physical salvation, miraculously they overcome. But for the story of Stephen today, well, that's not this story. So if you would, uh, take your Bibles open to Acts chapter 7 and stand with me out of honor. We stand out of honor for God's Word. We're going to begin in verse 54, Acts chapter 7, verse 54, and we're going to keep reading all the way through Acts chapter 8, verse 3. So whenever we get to that chapter break, don't let the jump trip you up. We're going to jump right over that, that break right there. So Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Just listen to what happened to Stephen in these moments and consider that question, what are the limits of your faith. When they heard these things, and by they it's the crowd that was listening to Stephen preach, when the crowd heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, look, I see the heavens, Stephen said, look, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out, the crowd cried out with a loud voice, They stopped their ears, and they ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then Stephen knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much. You can be seated for a second. So the question for today is, will we be intellectually honest? Will you be intellectually honest with the limits of your faith? And we see that Stephen has preached this incredible message, but the response to the message isn't that people got saved. It isn't that lives were changed. It's that Stephen gets stoned to death because he did what God told him to do. Stephen was faithful, and it was painful. Stephen was faithful, and it cost him his life. Now, see, for me, that raises all kinds of questions because that goes against the grain of everything I've grown up believing in the culture that I grew up in. I grew up in an American culture, and so we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But before we can talk about that, we need to take a closer look at at this passage. Look at verse 54, just so we can see clearly exactly what happened. Verse 54, When the crowd heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Have you ever made somebody so mad that they gnashed at you with their teeth, that they bit at you with their teeth? Have you ever made anybody that mad? Um, I, I don't know about you, but in my household, we are Sooner fans. We are rabid Sooner fans. Can I get a witness? Can some, maybe a boomer, somebody, anybody. Anybody like the Sooner fans? All right, any Sooner fans out there? Yeah. We are rabid Sooner fans. And, and uh, I went to OBU. I had intended to go to OU, but God changed the direction of my life and ministry, so I went to OBU. But I married a girl from OU, and when you cut her, she bleeds crimson and cream. And on game days... When OU is doing well, everyone on my street from my house, they know it because they can hear her screaming and shouting for OU. And on the days that OU isn't doing very well, everyone in Owasso from my house can hear it because my wife is screaming and shouting so loud. And a few years ago, uh, we got to go to the, the Sugar Bowl. Man, what a, fun, what a fun game to get to go to. We got to go to the Sugar Bowl and it was OU playing LSU. Now, I ask about the Boomer fans and uh, Sooner fans, can I get a witness? I'm not even going to ask about the LSU fans because we just don't really care. <laughs> um, ugly purple, all that stuff. But I know there's some LSU fans out there. But we go to the Sugar Bowl. We got tickets from my uncle. It was a blast. We had a great time. But one of the things I noticed when we first got there is we, we sat in the section. I mean, we're dressed to the nines in our crimson and cream outfits, you know, and all this stuff. And we got all this stuff on, and we're excited. And we sit down in the middle of a section that's filled with ugliest purple. <laughs> we're just surrounded by LSU fans, and it's, this, it's the Sugar Bowl. It's this big game, and there's this moment in the game. I'm thinking to myself, we're going to have to be careful. We could, this could be bad, and there's this moment in the game where OU, they catch they, they get the ball, and they run it down the field, and they make this touchdown, and I'm telling you, it was awesome. It was one of those game-changing kind of moments. They make this touchdown, and my wife Smooth out loses her mind. She's like, Woo! She jumps up, she says, yeah, woo! And I'm jumping up with her because I'm excited and we're high five and we're just having such a great time. And and then we're cheering and cheering, and then all of a sudden to me the cheer seems a little maybe awkwardly long, and so I kind of back off a little bit. And my wife is still standing next to me. Yeah, woo, yeah, she's still standing. There and there's and I'm trying to move a little bit away from her, but I can't because the things <laughs> It's just so crowded, and I, I, I noticed something happened, and I don't think she even saw that it happened, but this sea of purple in front of us, it's like they all stopped at the same time because everybody else in the stadium had stopped cheering, and they stopped, and, and I see this. Uh, it's like they stopped, and they just turn around, and they go, and they're just looking at us like that because they're all LSU fans, and my wife is still shouting. She's still cheering, and so I, I kind of sit down, and I'm like, I think you should sit down now. <laughs> We're going to die. And that moment, we had people so mad at us that they were gnashing their teeth at us over a touchdown at an OU game. I don't know if you've ever been that mad before, but if you've ever had anybody that mad at you. But that's how mad the, the crowd was at Stephen. And in other translations, it says that they were that mad at him because they couldn't resist his wisdom. And because he was filled with the Spirit. You see, that's the point where I want us to be intellectually honest. See, in today's culture, we get to pick our facts, and then we get to pick the people who support our facts. To, you know, that, that's how we do that. But in this moment, they had no choice but to respond to the message that that he was preaching, and they couldn't resist his message. That's actually another translation the Holman says. They couldn't resist his wisdom because he was speaking the word of God. And I know he wasn't just speaking the word of God. He wasn't doing it in a way that was offensive. I know that his way was, his approach was the right approach. He wasn't trying to win an argument. He was trying to win people. He was trying to demonstrate the love of Christ. I know that because it says that he did it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you remember what the fruit of the Spirit is, it's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So I know that his words were right because he was speaking with the wisdom of the word, but I also know that his approach was right. He was doing it the right way. He wasn't being mean and nasty, trying to, you know, boom, drop a mic. He wasn't trying to prove a point. He was trying to prove love. He was trying to show people what Jesus did and what Jesus said. They couldn't resist his message, so they killed the messenger. You see how that works? You see, if you're going to be intellectually honest you gotta, you got to let the facts be the facts. And there's some facts about who Jesus is that are undeniable, that are incontrovertible, that you really can't ignore today. There's some truth about your faith. There's some truth about the limits of your faith that you really ought to pay attention to today. You have limits to your faith. You've set them. You may not know what they are right now. I hope by the end of the message today that you will. But you've set limits. God, I'll follow you this far, but no further. You've done that. You should be intellectually honest about that. And instead of rejecting the message by killing the messenger, maybe you should receive this message today and do something about it. Be intellectually honest about the limits of your faith. For some of you it's I don't have any faith at all. That's my limit. For some of you you said I've got I've got a faith, but I'm not gonna share the gospel on the ball field or at my office or with my family. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna live I, I can't manage my finances or my time or my life. I can't manage it that way because man that that's not the way the world manages it. I'd never be able to keep up. What are the limits of your faith? You see, that's the question for today. Now, I want to remind you of something about Stephen. As we talk about Stephen last week, there's so many things that Stephen weren't. And truthfully, I think most of us in the room probably identify with Stephen better than other characters in Scripture because Stephen, just to remind you, he wasn't an apostle. He wasn't one of the disciples. Stephen wasn't a preacher. There's no indication that Stephen was an educated man. He may have been an educated man, but there's nothing in here to indicate that Stephen. Was an educated man. It just says that he was in this moment preaching the gospel. What the Bible does tell us about who Stephen was was that he was recognized as a servant in his community. He was recognized as someone who served the people of his community. See, just a few chapters earlier, there arises this problem in the church and, and it's that there are so many people whose needs are being met that some people are, are missing out. There were some Hellenistic, some Greek widows whose needs weren't being met and this problem arose that, that they just they were having a hard time meeting all the needs and, and it felt like a little bit of racism, it felt like a little bit of, of favoritism because the, the, the needs of the Greek widows weren't being met so the church got together and they said, you know what we should do? We should, we should select some respected men in the life of our church to serve in this way, to volunteer to meet these needs. We should select them and and, and let them do that. So they did, and so they ordained some men. Those men were ordained deacons. That's the very first deacons in Scripture. Stephen was one of those men. He was recognized as a respected leader, as a respected volunteer, as a respected servant in his community. So he wasn't a preacher, and he wasn't an apostle, and he wasn't necessarily this educated. He wasn't even a an, an old believer. Remember, he, he couldn't have grown up in a Christian home because there weren't any Christian homes. Christ had just died on the cross and rose from the dead. So he didn't grow up in a Christian home. It's not like he'd grown up in church and know all, knew all these answers and, and knew all those things. He didn't, he didn't have all of those things. He was just a guy serving God. Now, in our church, we have some men who are just like men like that, men who serve their community and who are recognized, and we call those men deacons as well. I'd love for our church to be able to see who you are. So if you're a deacon in the life of our church, could you just stand up where you are right now? Guys, could you just stand All the deacons who are in the room right now, this isn't all of our deacons, this is just some of our deacons. Stay standing for just a minute, but I want you to look around the room, and I want you to recognize that these are some men who are very much like Stephen. They're very much like Stephen. They're just like you and me. I see these guys at the Owasso Chamber of Commerce, and I see them, at, um, I see them at, at the Owasso Gathering on Main, and I see them in the school systems at school board meetings, and I see them, uh, I see them out on the ball field, and, and I see them inside the life of our church serving people here, there, and everywhere. I see them all over the place, and they do a fantastic job. And guys, you can have a seat. Thank you so much. Men, you've influenced my life, and you've influenced the life of my family. And I just want to say thank you for being the kind of men who are like Stephen. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. And I want to ask you as a church, can we just take a moment to express our appreciation and just say thank you for men like that? Thank you. That's awesome. They're men just like you and me, not apostles, not disciples. They may not ever hold a stage. They may never hold a microphone, but they're just doing, they're just living their lives, just doing what they do. And to a large degree, they've said, actually, I haven't met one of them yet. I haven't found the limits of any of our deacons yet. If we ask them to serve, they, they serve. They visit hospitals. They help with baptism. They serve the Lord's Supper. They're everywhere all the time. Stephen was one of those men. So he wasn't a preacher, just like you. He wasn't a preacher. But he was a guy who knew how to share the gospel, and, and that's what he was doing. Now, see, this is where the culture of our community and the culture of Scripture, for me, this is, where they, this is where they conflict. This is where I have a problem. Because I look in Scripture and I think about Stephen and I think about Peter. Peter was Stephen's pastor. And a few chapters earlier, Peter preaches almost the same message. I mean, Stephen, like I said, he's not a preacher, so he's just preaching the things that his pastor taught him, right? So he's just preaching the things that the pastor's taught him. And when Peter preaches it, it says 5,000 people get saved. And then later, Peter preaches essentially the same message. And Peter, now, it wasn't always, you know, wonderful for Peter. He got thrown into jail, but man, something miraculous happened. An angel steps into the prison and frees Peter. So Peter goes right back to the town square and starts preaching again. And again, he's preaching essentially the same message that Stephen's preaching, and it says that 3,000 people got saved. I mean, that's, that's who I want to be. I want to be Peter. That's the story I want to tell. I want to preach the gospel and see 5,000 people get saved or 3,000 people. I want to experience the miraculous work of God in someone's life. I want to see God miraculously save me out of a dangerous and harmful and a hurtful circumstance like Peter. <laughs> but that's not what happened with Stephen. Remember, we read that story. He preaches essentially the same message as Peter, and instead of anybody getting saved, the crowd rushes him. They drag him outside the city, and they stone him to death. They couldn't resist the message, so they killed the messenger. I, I don't, that's not the story I want to be a part of. That sounds like losing to me, doesn't it? That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound right. See, and in our culture, this is where our culture really beats up against Scripture. This is where I kind of struggle with this a little bit. You see, because we live in a culture of possibility. We live in a culture of, because we live in a culture of of possibility, we can always see another way to do things. We live in this, there's always, it seems like there's always 50 different ways to do something. I was at Starbucks the other day, and the guy in front of me, I don't know if I'm going to get this right or not, but it sounded like he ordered a grande half-caf decaf latte with a shot of vanilla in it. He wanted the foam on top slightly firm with a sprinkle of cinnamon. And I'm thinking... Dude, I just want something to drink. (laughs) Get out of my way. I think Starbucks may be designed for people who never have to make important decisions any other time of their life. That's the one most significant decision they get to make all day long. But we live in this culture of possibility. You don't just get a cup of coffee. You can put all this fancy stuff in it. We live in a culture of possibility. A little over a hundred years ago, if I wanted to get a message to you, I had to talk to you face to face. Or I could send someone to speak the message for me or I could write it in the form of a letter and send it to you. But in our culture of possibility, uh, you know, that's not the way things are today. In a culture of possibility, I can do all those things, but I can also email you and text you. We can do uh, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, texting, tweeting. We've got video games with chat rooms in them. I can connect with you a thousand different ways in this culture of possibility. And because of our culture of possibility, we always see a bunch of different ways to do things. And because we can see a different way to do things, we think it's a better way to do things. Because we see a different way, we think it's a better way. Uh, another example of that is that Keith Davis and I, both we, we both preach weddings from time to time. And so we've, Keith's done a lot more of them than I have. Keith's preached a lot more weddings than I have. And one of the weddings that Keith preached, he preached from right here, and it was the wedding for Brennan and Chelsea Fulton. And man, what a beautiful service it was. It was so much fun to see Brennan. Brennan's our student pastor. So much fun to see them get married. And Londa and I came, and we sat right back there in that section. And there's this moment in the service where, where Keith, as the guy preaching the wedding, he looks at Brennan, and he says, Brennan, he asks this very profound question, he says, Brennan, how do you make love? And there's this awkwardly long pause, and I mean, it's long enough that I looked at London and went... And then he goes, endure. How do you make love endure? <laughs> and I thought... Now, that's a great question for a wedding, it's, and it's made for a beautiful moment that we can tease Keith and Brennan and Chelsea about. How do you make love endure? We can tease them about it all and It's made for a beautiful moment in a beautiful wedding, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't think I'd have said it like that, though. That's a great question. I don't think I'd have said it like that. You see, in this culture of possibility, there's always, we always see another way to do something, and so that tracks all the way back to our opinion of God, doesn't it? Then that track all the way back to our opinion of God. Hey, God, I don't believe I'd have done it that way. And our way may be different, but it may not necessarily be better. And in our culture of possibility, because we see a different way and because it's our way, we automatically assume it's better, even though it may not be better. It may just be different. You see, that's one piece, and I look at Stephen's story, and I automatically, from the perspective of this culture of possibility, I automatically think, well, God, why can't Stephen's story be like Peter? Why couldn't you have saved him like you saved Peter? Why couldn't thousands of people gotten saved when Stephen preached? Surely there was another way. Surely there was a better way. You see, there's another culture that we live in that butts up against that, and that's that we live in a culture of safety and a culture of security. We live in a culture that avoids, that avoids discomfort. We live in a culture that avoids pain. We in a, live in a culture that avoids suffering and sacrifice. We do everything we can. I know that's true because when I was a kid and I learned how to ride a bike without training wheels, when I fell down, I scraped my knees and I beat up my elbows. And I, I had this one moment where I, when I was learning to ride a bike where I crashed and I scraped up the skin on my hand and it was flapped open and it was painful and it just I, I can still feel it tingling when I talk about it. But, but my kids... Man, when they learned how to ride a bike, they had knee pads and chin pads and elbow pads and a helmet and gloves. And when they fell off their bikes, they didn't scratch anything. They bounced because they looked like the Stay puffed Marshmallow Man. And they're awesome because we live in this culture of safety and security. And if it's painful, we avoid it. And if, it's dis- if there's discomfort, if there's suffering, if there's sacrifice, we avoid it. And what happens when you take the culture of possibility and the culture of suffering, and you put them together, all of a sudden is you've got a generation, our generation, us, who looks at God and says, God, there's sacrifice here. There's suffering here. Surely there's a better way. How could a loving God possibly put anybody through that? What's interesting about that question is it's a uniquely Western, uniquely American question to ask. In an Eastern culture or a Middle Eastern culture, they think, well, if God is a just God, if God is a just God, then how could He possibly forgive someone who's sinful, who's caused all that pain? It's exactly the opposite of that, but not in our culture. Our culture, culture of possibility, culture of security, culture of safety. And that's a problem because it butts up against Scripture, and our way may be different than God's, but our way certainly isn't better than God's. You know why I know that? It's actually the first point in your notes today. Because I know with certainty that God's purpose for you is bigger than you. God's purpose for you is bigger than you. We see it in the life of Stephen. God's purpose. For Stephen was so much bigger than that moment of what Stephen suffered and what Stephen went through. Stephen was the very first martyr recorded in Scripture. And it says in Acts chapter 8, it says that, that, that Stephen's death became the catalyst that caused the church at Jerusalem to spread all over the world. The gospel went out from Jerusalem here, there, and everywhere. Stephen's death was the catalyst that caused that. God's purpose for you is bigger than you. And in that moment, it took the suffering and the martyrdom of Stephen for the church to see something that they hadn't seen already. You know, back when Jesus rose from the dead, the last thing he said before he ascended into heaven was to go into all the world. Go into all the world. And make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He told them that they should carry that message from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the world. He gave them this command that they should go here, there, and everywhere. And you know what the church at Jerusalem was doing at this time? They were sharing the gospel in Jerusalem. They hadn't done it yet. And the catalyst for them to go was the death of Stephen. You see, God's purpose for you, even in the pain... Even in the trials, even in the discomfort, even in the displeasure, even through all of those things that hurt, God's purpose for you, recognize this. It's bigger than you. There's a pastor named Rick Warren. He coined a phrase, he put it in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. It's really popular. You've heard all of us on the platform at some point say it. It's not about you. You know, the circumstances you face, they're not always about you. It's not about you. It's about God and His glory. And I have a love-hate relationship with that statement as well because it's 100% true. It's absolutely true. It's not about you. But one of the things I think it fails to recognize is this truth that our God is intimate and our God is personal and He knows you by name and He wants to be known by you. He's made Himself knowable to you. And so while it's not about me, that's absolutely true. It's not about me. It involves me deeply, and it involves me intimately. And I think when God looks at us and reminds us that it's not about us, he's not just reminding us it's not about us. He's actually saying to you, think about this. Whatever you, I don't know what circumstance you're facing right now, but God's purpose for you in that circumstance, it's bigger than you. There's a bigger picture here. Look at what, look at what Stephen did. Verse 55, but Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. How is it that Stephen was able to suffer so much? How is it that his limits had no bounds? Abraham Lincoln of of the soldiers who died in the Civil War, he said they gave their last full measure of devotion for the sake of freedom. How is it that Stephen was able to give his last full measure of devotion for the sake of the gospel? How could he suffer so many things? Well, it's because he recognized that God's purpose for him was bigger than them. But how did he see that? Well, right there, verse 55, it tells us, he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The fact that Jesus is standing is an indication that his work's not done yet. I'm not finished yet. I think it's also an indication that Jesus was standing to welcome his servant home because the Bible says blessed in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. But that explains God's perspective on it. But what about Stephen's perspective on it? How could he suffer so and still honor God through all of that? Well, the answer is right there in verse 55. It says he gazed into heaven. You see, this is what we do, or at least this is what I do. Maybe you do this too, but I I do this. I have this tendency to gaze at my problems. I just gaze at my problems. And then occasionally I glance at my Savior. And usually when I glance at my Savior, it's coming from that perspective of the culture of possibility and the culture of security. God, surely there's another way. God, this hurts, and I can't believe you would have that. Surely, do you really love me? Come on, God. And I gaze right back at my problems. I gaze at my problems, and I glance at my Savior. Maybe I skip church for a little while. I forget about it. I stop reading the Bible. I stop praying because I'm gazing at my problems. And then when I show up at church, I glance at my Savior. Stephen did exactly the opposite of that. He focused his eyes on Jesus He gazed at his heavenly Father. He saw the work that Jesus had yet to finish. Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. And as soon as he did that, by gazing at his Savior, it's not that his problems went away. They didn't. It's not that the pain went away. It's that there was now a perspective on that pain and on that suffering that was bigger than him. He had a perspective on that pain. The pain didn't go away. The suffering didn't go away. But all of a sudden, those things, because I spent so much time staring at them that seemed so large in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for me and the fact that Jesus stands ready to help each one of us. When I gaze at him, I gain this proper perspective on all of those problems. And it's not about this culture of possibility where I look at God and go, God, surely there's another way. It's where I look at God and I recognize that God's purpose for me is bigger than me. And God, if you will it, so be it. That's what happens. And that's what Stephen did. Now, there's some other things I need us to recognize as we question the limits of our faith and we ask God, God, what is it really you want from us? How do you want us to approach our life? Is there suffering that I need to go through? Is there, am I, should I be willing to share the gospel on the ball field or in, with my coworkers? What should I do, God? How should I do that? We should do it the way Stephen did, but there's some other things we've got to recognize as we recognize that, that God's purpose for us is bigger than us. We should also recognize that the most significant thing you ever do The most significant thing you ever do may not be something you do. It may be something you lose. See, in a culture of possibility and security, that sounds really wrong. But can I tell you from the perspective of Scripture, it's not. It's the way God works. God gave up. He lost the life of His Son. Why? Because His purpose for Jesus was bigger than just the need, comfort, and pleasure of Jesus. His purpose for Jesus was me and you, the glory of God. It was all of those things. The gospel is this dangerous thing, and are you willing to walk in the danger? Are you willing to enter the danger of the gospel? Because the most significant thing you ever do may not be something you do. It may be something you lose. Stephen Stephen lost his life. And as a result of it, he became the catalyst that caused the gospel to spread here, there, and everywhere. We may, not, we may not even know the gospel. You and I today in this generation, we may not even know the gospel had Stephen not done this. Look at uh, Philippians chapter 3 for just a second. There's another believer later in Scripture who writes this about losing. The most significant thing you ever do may not be something you do. It may be something you lose. This believer says this in Philippians chapter 3 but uh, verse 7 but what things were gained to me these I've counted loss for Christ yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them in ru- as rubbish that I may gain Christ and then skip over to verse 13 Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. This is a believer who measured his salvation not by what he gained, but by what he gave away, by what he lost. I consider all these things loss for the excellence of knowing Jesus. The most significant thing you ever do may not be something you do. It may be something you lose. Watch this. The most significant thing you ever do it may not be something you do. It may be someone you forgive. It may be someone you forgive. Acts chapter 7. Turn back there with me. Verse 59. And the crowd stoned Stephen. As he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down, and Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with these sins. Sounds an awful lot like Jesus on the cross, doesn't it? Father, forgive them. Some of your translations, mine's in the New King James Version, maybe yours says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's just imitating what he heard his Savior say on the cross at Calvary. The most significant thing you ever do may not be something you do, it may be something you lose, or it may be someone you forgive. You see, there was this man who was there. His name was Saul. Saul approved of what was going on. He didn't just approve of what was going on, he held the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen to death. And in verse 3 of chapter 8, it says that Saul wreaked havoc in the life of the church. Saul was given the permission and the authority to step into households and to pull people from their homes and to torture them and abuse them and throw them into prison and to to kill them. Why? Because they were Christians. Saul had all that authority. and, And in this moment, this is Saul's first recorded instance, his first experience with the gospel. This is Saul's first experience, first recorded experience with the gospel. And what does he see? He sees a man who's imitating Jesus Christ and saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Later on the road to Damascus, Saul has this incredible encounter with God where his life is forever transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. He receives this faith. He receives faith in Christ Jesus, and he becomes a saved man. He becomes a believer in Christ Saul changes his name to Paul, and he becomes the man who ends up writing two-thirds of the New Testament. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul writes this incredible verse. He watches Stephen, the first recorded instance of Paul's interaction with the gospel. He watches Stephen, quote, almost word for word, what Jesus said on the cross. Jesus, Stephen is imitating Jesus Father, forgive them. Don't let this sin be counted against them. And in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul's instruction to the church at Corinth is, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Take takes some guts to be able to say that. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I have to wonder, as he wrote those words, imitate me as I imitate Christ, did he think about Stephen in that moment when Stephen imitated Christ and said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Paul's testimony is glorious. The church was, even after he got saved, the church was so afraid of him. And in Galatians chapter one, Paul shares his testimony. And in his, at the end of his testimony, he's talking about the church and how afraid of him they were. And he says, and they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. And in verse 24, it says, Paul says, and they glorified God in me. Stephen's forgiveness became the catalyst For Paul's experience as a believer, the most significant thing you ever do may not be something you do, it may be someone you forgive. Paul also writes in Philippians chapter 1, it's such an incredible thing that he writes, and I think he learned it first by watching Stephen. He he writes in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul writes that from prison. He's in prison for his faith. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yet what I shall choose I can't tell because I'm hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful of you. And being confident of this, that if I remain and continue with you all in the, in, in the flesh, that, that, that this will mean fruit from my labor. In other words, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to be producing something glorious for the, for the sake of God. There will be no limits to my faith, even if that means I have to die. Why? Because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is the one who says, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And his first recorded interaction with the gospel is watching a man who gave his last full measure of devotion for his faith is watching a man say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. He's watching a man imitate Christ. God's purpose for you is bigger than you, and the most significant thing you ever do may not be something you do. It may be something you lose or someone that you forgive. And it just reminds me that in this culture of possibility and security, maybe we've got it wrong. Security is important. Possibilities are awesome. But maybe there's something to be said for pain. Maybe there's something to be said for enduring through the suffering. Philippians chapter 1, verse 30, Paul says, For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. I'm just reminded that out of the greatest tragedies, the greatest tragedies often produce the most glorious outcomes Just reminded of that that the greatest tragedies often produce the most glorious outcomes. In 1931, 1931, there was a couple living in Oklahoma City, and they had a baby, beautiful little baby girl, healthy, laughing, beautiful baby girl. 1931. In 1933, on August 18th, 1933, that little baby girl. Got to, got to welcome into the world a baby sister. So here's this couple living in Oklahoma City, 1933. They welcomed this beautiful baby sister, April 18th. And on April 19th, that sister that was just born a day earlier, she died. I, I can't imagine the hurt or the pain of having a child for a day and then that child passing away. And then on January 5th, 1934, Just a few months after the death of their second child, their first child, who was just a little over two, got sick and died also. I can't imagine the pain. Within six months, eight months, they lost two babies, neither one of them older than three years old. I can't imagine the pain and the tragedy and the suffering and the heartbreak and the questioning, God, how can you love us? How can you do this? I can't imagine what they must have felt. At the same time, 1937, a few years later, there's a young teenage girl, and she gets pregnant. She's not married. Different town. She gets pregnant. She's not married. She's scared. Abortion's not even an option, but if it were an option, she wouldn't have taken it because she felt like the life of the child mattered. She knows who the dad is. There's a shotgun wedding. They get married, and seven days later, the wedding is annulled. And she's left on her own with this baby on the way, late 1937. She's left by herself. She's scared. She feels abused. She feels abandoned. She feels alone. I can't imagine the hurt of that tragedy or the suffering she must have gone through. And on July 15th, 1938, that child was born. And that couple, that couple who lost those two baby girls in 1931 and 1933, or 1933 and 1934, those that couple they decided to adopt that child that little boy and the man who adopted him the man and woman who adopted him, they were people of faith and so they 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 didn't just change that man's life that man's life would have been so different had he stayed with his biological mom she was scared she was alone she was a teenager this couple adopts this child july 15th 1938 and they change his life forever the quality of his life is different. They're a family of faith. And so they begin pouring faith into this young man, July 15th, 1930. They pour faith into him. They don't just change his quality of life, they don't just change his faith. They change his name. They name him after, partially after the, the, the adoptive father. The adoptive father, his name was Oval Edward Balthrop. That was my grandfather. And He poured faith in his name into his adopted son, Charles Edward Balthrop. That's my dad. And my dad my mom, they've poured their faith in me, and now I carry the name Chad Edward Balthrop. And right now I have four kids, and Londa and I are desperately trying to pour our faith into them. And you know what? My firstborn son, he bears my name and the name of my father, and the name of his father before him. His name is Cademan Edward Balthrop. Through all that sadness, through all that suffering, through all that tragedy, I don't know if I would be, let alone what I would be, had that not happened. God's purpose for you is bigger than you, and the most significant thing you ever do may not be something you do, it may be something you lose or someone you forgive. So the question for our invitation, our time of response today is really simple. What are the limits of your faith? Is there something today you need to lose? Is there someone today you need to, be for, you need to forgive? Someone you need to forgive or something you need to lose? For some of you, it may be you just need to surrender and place your faith in Christ in the first place. Can I assure you that when you recognize what it is that God's done for you, you'll see that purpose that's so much bigger than you and how glorious it is. It's a transformation that's fully worth it no matter the sacrifice.